Hello to all of our OTH listeners. Today we have a podcast for you focused on space threats and opinions from Air Force Space Officers on the U.S. military's burgeoning Space Force. Joining us today, we have Matthew Broker-Beck, a Space Weapons Officer and Air Command and Staff College's Shriver Scholars Program. Also joining us is Adam Howler-Howland, also a Air Command and Staff College student and career space officer. We'd like to remind listeners that the opinions shared in this OTH podcast are those of the participants and do not reflect official policy or the position of the Department of the Air Force or the U.S. government. Before we begin, we invite you to connect with Over the Horizon Journal on our website, OTHjournal.com, on Facebook at OTHMDOS, Twitter at OTH underscore MDOS, or on LinkedIn by searching for Over the Horizon. We also invite your feedback on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast client. Broker, let's start with you. Please tell us a little bit about your background and experiences as a space officer. Yeah, thanks for having me here. Uh, So I started off my Air Force career uh, at Malmstrom Air Force Base in the 490th Missile Squadron, drive on. Uh, Then I went to uh, the 1st Space Operations Squadron down at Schriever in 2010. Uh, When I was there, I worked uh, space situational awareness, so tracking and monitoring uh, satellites with uh, space-based systems, a couple different ones. Uh, In 2012, I went uh, to weapons school, uh, graduated from the uh, Air Force Space Superiority Weapons Instructor course, and then spent a couple years with the National Reconnaissance Office uh, at Buckley Air Force Base. Uh, While I was there, I also deployed uh, out to CENTCOM and was on the Director of Space Forces staff uh, as the Space Weapons Officer. Uh, Came back from that and then spent a couple years uh, back out at Nellis Air Force Base instructing at the weapons school. Uh, finished up there as the Director of Operations for the Space Superiority Weapons Squadron and then uh, have been here uh, at class for the last year. Thank you, Broker. Glad to have you with us. Also joining us is Adam Howler-Howland. Adam, as I said, is also a career space officer and he also is a foreign area officer. Adam? Sure. So again, thanks for having me. This is a really neat opportunity to talk about this. Uh, similar sort of beginnings as, uh, as Broker. I was a missileer in the 741st, that's in Minot, North Dakota, and then transitioned to the 3rd Space Operations Squadron. They do military satellite communications. Uh, After there, I I spent about five and a half years doing foreign area officer work in Central Asia and Afghanistan, including uh, two deployments out there doing foreign military sales and then ending up as the, uh, not only the desk officer at uh, international headquarters of international affairs for uh, the Air Force, but also uh, in theater as the principal advisor to uh, the commander out there on the implementation of our bilateral and multilateral uh, agreements with Afghanistan. And then, of course, for the last year, I've been a student here. Thank you, Adam. To begin, let's start our discussion about a controversial topic in the Department of Defense right now, the creation of a U.S. Space Force. So President Trump has advocated that the U.S. needs to not just be capable in space, but dominant in space, and a dedicated space force would bring that to bear. As of last week, the Senate Armed Services Committee endorsed a space force in its version of the 2020 Defense Policy Bill. So in this proposal, Air Force Space Command would transform into the U.S. Space Force, with the current Air Force Space Command Commander, General Raymond, at the helm as the new commander of U.S. Spacecom. This is interesting because, aside from what our lawmakers think, even within the current space community, there are differing opinions on the value and necessity of a space force. Regardless, there seems to be a few themes a space force could potentially address. 
treating space as a warfighting domain, a faster acquisitions process, Air Force culture, and keeping ahead of near-peer adversary space capabilities. What are your gentlemen's thoughts? Adam, I know you had the opportunity to be part of a lot of the Air Force's high-level discussions on the creation of a space force, so let's start with you. Well, sure, thank you. Uh, so to me, this discussion is really about uh, the perception of our or our attitude toward space as the United States. Uh, I'm completely convinced that without the creation of a space corps or a space force or even a U.S. Space Command, I believe that we would still be doing the mission that we're doing from the military side tomorrow without that. But for the, for the rest of the United States and for our messaging going out into the world to our international partners, this is a signal to them that we are focusing on the domain that is space. And so it's about perception and it's about framing a, a future problem, if you will, for the international community, which is, as you mentioned, space as a warfighting domain. Uh, to some of the other things that you uh, that you specifically mentioned, we absolutely need to keep ahead of of near peer and and peer adversaries' space capabilities. And part of this debate is whether or not combining all of those assets and capabilities and acquisitions, structures and processes would help us to maintain that. And there's actually really hearty debate going on about that, whether or not that would happen. Um, and then the last thing I wanted to mention partic- uh, in specific was uh, about our conversations with our, with, with, with our allies and partners. This is a sticking point for them. Uh, this boundary between space as a warfighting domain and one through which other things happen. But I think that we'll probably save that, save that conversation for a little bit later on down the line. So I'll, I'll just stop there. Sure. I think uh, one thing that I'd add in is it's, it's important to understand too that this isn't a new debate. I think it's, it's interesting now because it's received a lot of attention lately based off of, you know, senior leader comments and, and uh, publications that have been out there. But, you know, if you go back and look, uh, as far back as you know, in the 80s, there were spa- there were studies and discussions, and that's really when Air Force Space Command itself was stood up. And then you have in 2001, the Rumsfeld Commission talked about the need for focusing on space and improving our, uh, you know, all the things you talked about: our understanding of adversaries, our training, our equipment, our capability, um, and really looking to the future. And then that. Uh, Obviously, we had to be redirected a little bit in 2001 to address the emerging threats and right what happened then. And so for the last, you know, 15-ish years, we've really been focused on the coin fight and on addressing, you know, extremists uh, or violent extremists. And this is really just coming back to a head as we have more of the intel and more of the information coming out. Uh, If you look at like the CSIS reports, Secure World Foundation, and some of the other information that's out there that has really changed the uh, understanding of space as a domain and a warfighting domain, uh, and then match that with all the advancements on the commercial side that has really driven down the barriers for access to space. 
So not only making it easier for the United States, for our government, for our military, but also for the commercial sector and for other countries uh, to also have improved and increased access really brings these discussions back to the forefront. So, Broker, let's stick with you. You talked a little bit about space as a warfighting domain, and the DOD has moved towards recognition of space as a warfighting domain in recent years. In fact, the most recent national security strategy highlighted one of its priority actions as advancing space as a warfighting domain. Further, in Vice President Pence's announcement designating a space force, he stated that our adversaries have already made it clear that space is a warfighting domain. So what does that mean to you as a space weapons officer? And if you could, for our listeners that are not space experts like myself, how do you see space functioning as a warfighting domain, and why is this designation important to our other warfighting domains? So uh, to go back to your point, uh, as, a, as a weapons officer, the, the job is really to be an expert on space capability and integrating that capability to the fight and integrating that capability so that when we project force, uh, everybody has the full suite of uh, you know, the military power to accomplish the mission. Uh, and what that means, at least to me personally, is that uh, there, it's a twofold challenge. One is being able to integrate those capabilities and improve our ability to operate uh, and uh, accomplish the mission, uh, while at the same time uh, ensuring that those capabilities persist uh, in a contested environment. So making sure that you know, we have the correct protections and tactics and procedures in place so that uh, our systems can continue to operate and continue to provide, you know, this advantage that we have and have used and grown up with and, and come to rely on, not just from a military aspect, but from a government and really from a civilian aspect, things like, you know, GPS, uh, all of our satellite communications and you know if you look to the future right uh, SpaceX just launched their 60 satellites for a worldwide uh, internet type capability uh, that that's only going to grow and people are going to become even more dependent on that uh, in the future and so focusing on it as a warfighting domain is is important not only to protect those uh, pieces but uh, really to balance out um, to bring balance to our capability for our warfighters. So it's interesting the way that Broker just ended that. I was just thinking about uh, the Federalists. If, you, if you're aware of what this is or if you're not, this was a series of conversations that was being had historically in the United States on a number of different topics right as we were transitioning from being a sovereign nation and having to move from the Articles of Confederation to our current Constitution. And one of the principal debates was actually about protection of commerce over the ocean. In fact, the impetus for the first standing military that we had in the United States revolved around the protection of commerce. And so as Broker talked about, the the cost barrier for access to the to space as a domain is being driven down. And as that happens, more actors will be there. And so there needs to be a way for a nation who has invested a significant amount of treasure in capabilities in that domain to protect those assets. And whether that's through uh, laws and treaties, whether that is through capability, 
or whether that is just through increased strategic presence, all of those things factor into how we do that. And there was no debate in the 1700s whether or not the maritime domain was a war-fighting domain because we had been fighting wars in it already. But the question was about how do we protect our commerce? And that is part, a significant portion actually, of the debate, the debate that we're having today is how do we protect those exquisite assets as the cost of access is driven down significantly and as the number of actors increases. So to follow up on that, uh, where do you gentlemen think we are culturally from both a military and civilian population perspective on the potential of a conflict that both starts and ends just in space alone as a domain? So I think it's a that's a hard question to, um, to uh, understand, I think, unless you're closely tied to the problem. And what I mean by that is, you know, when we see troops moved forward into a into a different AOR to address a mission, or when we see uh, carriers uh, providing presence, uh, you know, whether that's in the Gulf or maybe that's in uh, the Pacific, like that's a very tangible thing and something that people understand and 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 relate to. And the reality is, is that I think to directly answer your question, we will likely see conflict begin and end in space. I think that the challenge will be that not very many people will be aware of it, whether that's because we have proliferated architectures and all kinds of different systems that provide capability and so there isn't an interruption in service, or whether that's because it's a one-off conflict that takes place somewhere in between in like a gray zone type type engagement. It may not ever make it to the general public that that even took place. However, It'll be critically necessary to enabling this, the capabilities that you know make our military what it is today and provide our ability to project power forward. And so it's, I think it is a challenge that is unique to the, to the space domain because you don't have access to every single, or every single individual does not have access to understand what's happening day to day or readily see it unless it's in the mainstream news, which, you know, is up for debate as to what will actually make it into, you know, everybody's newsfeed on their Apple phone or not. Sure. And again, Broker brought up a, a very interesting point and one that he and I have actually had a conversation about before. And I know I've had this conversation with you as well, Paige. And that is that one of the challenges that we have in the United States and in the Western world as a whole is that we view we tend to view conflict as combat. And so these these shows of force, whether they be, you know, you like to talk about the carrier group moving into a, moving into inter- close to the border of international waters with a, w- with another nation or the place of the forward deployment of troops, we, we call this in the, you know, the vernacular of the of the military below the threshold of armed conflict. But really, these are things that are conflict to many of the cultures and nations of the world. And so this spectrum of conflict that is below kinetic action, where you know shots are fired and assets are destroyed, 
permanently is uh, is a very narrow sliver of that broad spectrum. And so I agree with Broker entirely. It, we will absolutely have conflicts, escalation and conflict that will start and end in the space and cyber domains. And the challenge will be how we message or not message that with purpose. And communicating the necessity of capabilities to to enable us to have those conflicts that start and stop in those domains is the challenge because it's not in the news. It's not in the limelight. It's never going to make news the same way that special forces, troops being killed in Afghanistan or in Somalia. It's never going to get there. Unless, of course, I have an interruption in internet, and then it will be the first thing that I see when my internet comes back up. Right. So it it, it is a, it is a perennial and perpetual challenge that we will have in these domains in particular. I think a good just to tag on one thing to that because you brought up uh, it's interesting you brought up the special forces aspect because uh, one thing that I think of is right those folks are highly trained, highly skilled, highly specialized in what they do and. Uh, to the Space Force discussion, I think that that lends credibility to the argument that not that we do a bad job of that now, but it takes a highly specialized, skilled, trained force that is very focused on that, that I think is improved by having a separate force because you have the ability to focus your organizing, training, and equipping on that one particular area and an avenue of expertise. And you know the the debate ranges as to how that grows and what that actually becomes, but uh, I think that that is one argument that you hear that that I at least personally agree with. That I think that that increase in attention will help improve those areas. Absolutely, and the interestingly enough, relative to so one of the lessons learned, in my opinion, that we can take away from the special forces fights in the coin environment of these of these you know last 15 or 16 years are the challenges that we had with scalability of that right so they're very very effective at what they do but the nature of their operations are not necessarily always efficient and so it's it's hard to scale that to you know an entire campaign or an entire operation and this is part of the challenge that our senior leaders are looking at with the space force how do you take hyper-specialized, hyper-effective tools and scale them at a national or strategic level so that we can get the effects on time and uh, and in the right place effectively. It, 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 it's it's going to be a challenge, and this is part of what a space force or a space core would be would be trying to solve. This is a this is a problem that they'll have to tackle. So uh, one more add-on. So do we think that as um, our capabilities and our adversaries' capabilities in space grow and mature, that a new potential goal might be to stop all conflicts in the space domain before they actually move to the other domains? So try and end things in space 
so we don't have to end up committing troops on the ground or sending ships to war. So almost like a deterrence of let's end it here so we don't actually have to do real war with human beings. All right, I'm coining the phrase now. So when, when this becomes a thing, we're, it's going to come back to this podcast. I'm going to call it space brinksmanship. I think that this sure. is going to be a thing. I think this is going to be a real thing. And the way that it's going to happen is what we're talking about. It's it's in that that portion of the spectrum below the threshold of armed conflict where we can take an adversary right up to that edge and say, which of us is going to jump off this edge first? We're going to get really close and we're going to see who's going to push and who's going to pull. And I think this is actually a fairly effective strategy given our current near-peer adversaries based on how they want to be perceived in the world because of their relationship with other nations. This might actually be a very valid and usable strategy, this idea of space brinksmanship. So thanks for bringing it up because now if it ever becomes a thing, I I got to say it first. You heard it here on OTH. (laughs) So, Adam, back to you. Um, One of the issues I mentioned earlier in regards to the creation of a Space Force is Air Force culture. So the Air Force mission is to fly, fight, and win in airspace and cyberspace, but many would argue that the Air Force still treats space and cyberspace as a backseat compared to the air part of the mission. Even with the growth in the Air Force's space and cyber operations, there are distinct cultures within the Air Force. Historically, looking back at the break from, of the Army Air Corps and the creation of the Air Force, um, which helped establish the Air Force as its own separate culture and leadership style. Do you think we're at a similar inflection point with space or cyber operations in the Air Force? Uh, simply put, the answer is yes. Uh, I, I do believe that we're at that inflection point. However, I'm hoping that because our force is a relatively young force, and the lessons and growing pains and continued uh, pushing and pulling that we do with the army over support. Because that's still existent, it's still extant today, I hope that the Air Force looking out towards space and cyber will apply those lessons so that we don't have to relearn them as we continue to extend into um, into those domains. And I think there's a, there's a lot of great work and examples that we can talk about that, uh, that, that highlight some of those focuses and changes. And so Adam and I have talked about, uh, we both got to uh, Shriver Air Force Base around the same time in 2010. Uh, and the, the training that was taking place at that time was very much, very much focused on day-to-day operations. And I'd say with a a slight nod of the hat towards threats. It would be, you know, a very broad brush introduction or discussion maybe happening quarterly uh, within the wing. Uh, some squadrons did more often than others. Uh, it's just kind of dependent on the uh, capability or the people that you had in-house. Uh, and I'd say that the, the force of today is different. Uh, there's, you know, exercises and there's advanced training developed around threats and around uh, protecting assets and providing capability and thinking and thinking along those lines. Uh, there's also a renewed emphasis on what initial training looks like for space operators. So, uh, you know, what used to be a shortened course that was then focused on your 
uh, wing level training is now going to be a 110-day course uh, taught out at Vandenberg that folks will go to when they first assess. Uh, and then it'll be broken down by, you know, what uh, warfighting function you're going to fall into with some more in-depth training. And so I think, in my opinion, what you'll see is is a, a change in that culture that you mentioned that more addresses the emergence of this warfighting domain and the discussions that surround it. Uh, and you'll see a, a force that is uh, more focused on those aspects than what I would say was really just a, you know, uh, gas the vehicle and make sure it drives kind of approach, uh, at least, you know, back several years ago. Thank you, Broker. That was a great summary of what it takes to build Space Force operators. What are your guys' thoughts on building a more space-minded joint force? Interestingly enough, I think that to, to use what General Goldfein wrote in his three main points, what he talked about was was about merging operations that move at the speed of light with operations that move at the speed of sound. And I, I think that his way of framing it that way, and then of course his allusion to this being sort of like how a quarterback manages a, a, a well-trained football team, an American football team, I think is particularly relevant to what you're talking about. It's about helping the Air Force understand that each niche has a part to play and maybe getting away from the the vernacular that you're an enabler or you're a supporter or you're an operator maybe there's maybe there's some space in there to have that type of conversation but uh i know that as a as a captain and as a flight commander with my young airmen trying to help them understand what they contributed to the the global mission of our Department of Defense was a real challenge because we didn't have those conversations. I didn't have those conversations with my senior leaders. Fortunately, this renewed emphasis on space as a warfighting domain provides ammunition from and rhetoric from senior leaders about how space should be viewed and all of the pieces that go along with that. And so Again, this is part of the debate about what a space force or a space core might actually be able to do, is that as soon as you consider space assets uh, as truly national, strategic, almost instruments of power, because you can define those however you want, there is all of that layer of support that goes along with it to maintain that strategic capability. And so one of the strongest, in my opinion, uh, arguments for that space force is just that. It's the fact that now I have this ability to do that, but it comes with a, it comes at a cost. I mean, right now, internal to the Air Force, if space has got, if space needs more money, because they have a shortfall or a program goes long, it's possible to move funds internal to the Air Force, right? But that becomes a prioritization exercise for our most senior leaders. Well, if you have a space force or a space core, it's now not a question of priority. It's a question of, do I have the resources that I need? And that's a very different conversation. And so what, what you gain in one area, you now gain the subset of 
challenges and obstacles to, that go along with overcoming that. So then, um, skipping forward a little bit, what do you gentlemen think about China's establishment of the PLA SSF about four years ago? So People Liberation's Army Strategic Support Force, which isn't the equivalent of a U.S. Unified Command, but it's an organization designed to help integrate space, cyber, and electronic warfare capabilities into PLA operations through focusing on facilitating C4ISR for system versus system warfare and counterspace operations. Is this potentially a type of organizational structure that might be more potentially beneficial than the creation of a separate space force if we just reorganized ourselves similar to this? I think the, the key thing that, um, or the key wording that I take away from that is that is their focus on the integration. Because the, the real challenge, right, in any military operation is, is integrating all your capability. And so, um, you know, I'll point back to the uh, there's a great, uh, for folks with the power of the Google, there's a great uh, CSIS counterspace threat report from 2019 uh, written by uh, Todd Harrison. And then there's another great uh, report out there written by the Secure World Foundation counterspace threat report. Uh, if you just type both those into Google, uh, you get both ones of like a 60-page document. The other, I think, has about 120 pages. But they do a great job of describing in detail the threats uh, that's in, in space and then also what different countries actions are taking and I, I think when you look at that what that looks like to me is a very very challenging problem set of integrating that capability um, and I think that the Chinese have done a great job of also recognizing that which has led to their way of organizing I think the big difference though is that when you look at their organization is they that's almost like I would equate what we would call the whole of government approach to organizing against the problem. And I think that the, the, the U.S. method of organizing and the way that we organize and present forces uh, is probably one to model and continue using, right? Because that's how everyone understands and how we wrap in joint capability, how we f fight together, how we work together, because it's a common um, mental model that everybody operates off of. And I think that uh, the standing up of a, of a unified command, the US, you know, U.S. Space Command, is the, the right step towards that because you now have a separation of your two functions, if you think about it. You have your organized, train, and equip, which will be handled by Air Force Space Command, maybe an Air Force Space Corps, maybe a Space Force, uh, and then you have your execution component or warfighting component that is your... Um, your U.S. Space Command that in the interim, while the organization piece for organized training and equip is figured out, will be able to address and you know push forward capability and thought um, in terms of addressing the, the emergent threats as they exist today. Sure. The only thing I would add on is that, again, I came, I'm going to come back to what I started off with in that this is a message. Just like we are interpreting the messages that are coming to us, we send messages out as well. And so what we're doing right now is allowing us to send a message to the international community about where our head is relative to this. And that is that we are looking at integrating space capabilities the same way that we work to integrate all other capabilities through these domains to provide effects. And all that another nation has to do 
to get an idea about what we expect on the tail end is look at what we've done in the past, right? And so this evolution of joint war fighting that we've had over these many years, uh, this is just a continuation of that. It's the incorporation of new capabilities in new domains to continue to provide the types of decisive effects that forward our nation's cause, and if need be, by coercive force. And so that's uh, it's part and parcel of what we do. And so what China is doing, it falls very well into their paradigm, and we should interpret it as steps similar to what we're doing. That's absolutely what that means. There's no... There's no hiding it. There's no way. There's no reason to have any more discussion about it. But we shouldn't change ourselves because they're changing them. We should just carry on with what we're doing because we're moving in the right direction. All right. So going back to you, broker, and kind of sticking with the China theme and the current administration's goal to dominate in space. Let's talk about where the U.S. stands in comparison to potential adversaries in space. So for myself as an intel officer. Uh, China comes to mind first as the adversary in space we should be the most concerned about. General Raymond, who will be potentially the commanding officer of U.S. Space Command, has briefed that China is expanding the number of its satellites and, and in the event of a conflict would seize the initiative in the space domain first with the intent of leaving the U.S. blind, at least during the beginning of the conflict. What are your guys' thoughts on this? So I... I just uh, reemphasize those two reports I mentioned earlier have a lot of a lot of great detail in them, but I think the the most challenging aspect is that uh, and kind of like you mentioned with the way that they've reorganized that China in particular has a whole whole host of different demonstrated capabilities and um, and and intent out there that uh, you know we've seen multiple different. Uh, Systems. So they, they had the direct ascent ASAT that they launched, uh, I believe, back in 2007. Uh, they have, you know, capabilities uh, that, you know, probably they, they've stated uh, that they have directed energy uh, weapons, that they have uh, co-orbital systems that have practiced rendezvous and proximity operations uh, at both uh, at LEO um, and that they're looking um, out to GEO with. And I think that... The, the challenge in my mind is that all those capabilities and all those uh, systems that they, they talk about and that they have are things that we need to now uh, account for and prepare for and look towards as a potential threat. Um, and that's really the challenge that requires a, a in-depth focus um, from space command and from space professionals across the board. I don't have anything to add. I think you said it very well. <laughs> All right. Uh, so let's move on to uh, a another potential concept for a space force. So what do you gentlemen think about something that might be more similar to the Coast Guard? So the Coast Guard is, is currently charged with port and waterway security, establishing aids to maritime navigation, search and rescue, uh, maritime safety and law enforcement. So many of these missions could potentially translate to space such as navigation, safety, and security, especially as there's more commercial entities in space. So if we treated orbits such as low earth orbit and other locations as the ports and waterways of space, um, and they could be threatened by space debris, 
solar flares and other natural man-made threats. Uh, as humans venture more frequently into space, eventually, potentially a, a astronaut or civilian explorer from, you know, maybe Virgin Galactic or something, um, could potentially be uh, one of those people lost in space. Space is extremely dangerous, and in order to establish confidence in the safety of spacefaring, the U.S. Um, government is going to need to figure out what authorities and rules they need to uh, establish for space safety um, and to potentially investigate accidents that could happen as it becomes more congested. So I think one thing, uh, the, oh, there are two points that I'll hit on that you brought up was the uh, was first the um, the law enforcement aspect. So I think as you have uh, commercial companies, as you have uh, you know government entities, as you have all these people operating and internationally that are operating in space, you have to have some sort of international norms and rules, and those exist in the other domains, and they're, they're things that we've you know worked through and addressed and, and operate around and agreed to, and I think as space emerges um, as more of a um, as the commercial industry emerges and other nations you have a low barrier of access to get into space, we're going to have to develop those things. And I think that a, a organization like the Coast Guard is one to maybe pull some specific pieces out of uh, and, and look to uh, as a model. Uh, however, I think it, that space is a broader uh, problem set than the Coast Guard, which is traditionally focused on your ports and waterways and what I would say is more your uh, brown water type um, uh, operations and as the commerce expands as our access increases as we have travelers as we have you know companies talking about lunar gateways we have NASA talking about going back to the moon and we have all these increased requirements uh, it's going to take a force that is not only with the proper authorities and capability, but also with the proper access uh, and focus on not just that uh, specific, you know, port and waterway type approach, but probably more like entire lines of communication, key terrain, strategic points uh, to ensure that safety and security, not only in the, you know, more narrow concept, but from a domain aspect. Oh my gosh. <clears throat> this is where science fiction has helped us. All. I think it could help us a lot. Like I'm a huge sci-fi fan, but let's talk about, you know, two of the biggest science fiction franchises have dealt a lot with this. I mean, you've got your Star Wars, which has to do with these intergalactic, massive national or galactic forces that come in conflict with each other. And how do you deal with that? But then you've got the the Star Trekkers, the, the the Trekkies, which which have a lot more to do with the diplomatics of how things would work and how do you enforce police and all of these things. And so I think that at the expense of sounding a little campy, almost, I think that science fiction and history his, history as a could be used as a tool to provide us a foundation for how to think about it. Not necessarily how to solve it. Like, there's no need to pull the, you know, the the Space Federation's rules of engagement off of uh, some novel or out of a movie and say this is where we're going to start from. But as a thought exercise, I think it's valuable that someone else has already thought about it and that 
it's had access to a lot of people who then have a response to it, and then they modify what they're doing because that's that, that's a commercial thing. They're trying to make money, so they, they, they there there needs to be. I, I believe there's a there's a space for it. Um, and I think I, if I can throw in one thing, the the hardest part of any of these conversations and 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 even entering into this discussion is you have to overcome the giggle factor of like we just talked about Star Wars and Star Trek, right? Yep. And the 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 reality though is that you know uh, I I was just out at the space symposium in Colorado Springs uh, about a month and a half ago, and they had virtual reality demonstrations there of the lunar gateway that companies are planning on building and proposing concepts for that'll be in between the earth and the moon that will you know probably in the next 15 years have people on it and so it's while while there is the giggle factor that you have to get over and the somewhat sci-fi nature of it the other thing is that it's it is a likely reality in that i think we'll see in our lifetimes and probably in you know we're all majors and probably in our military career there will be have to be some sort of addressing of this of this problem set so it's a it's a real thing, but it but it's one you have to overcome, right? Because Steve Carell is going to make a make a Space Force Netflix show, right? That everybody's going to laugh at. And if I had a nickel for every meme that I got from friends of mine when that was announced, I probably wouldn't be sitting here. <laughs> sure, but and, but that's the goodness of it as well is that it it gives us a a jumping off point to have these types of conversations. And let's be real. Let's make no mistake about it. If we were to go back in history 100 years to the beginning of man flight, we would see a similar giggle factor and similar very critical reviews of manned propelled heavier than air flight. And so this this shouldn't be new to us, this idea that we're going to have to cross that threshold. Um, I would say that we're there, and and if nothing else, the fact that people are thinking about it, the fact that those conversations can be had, allows us to both through satire, but through science fiction and through history, to provide lenses through which our leadership can look at and frame a, a serious conversation about moving forward, which is which was what I took away from the space symposium. Yeah. And of course, my role there was very different than yours. I was there looking at the, the bilateral conversations that we were having with our partners about space looking forward. So I didn't get to go to all of those other presentations because I was on <laughs> I was in those backroom conversations. Uh, but there was there was still enough of a giggle factor even there as we were entertaining questions from our allies and partners about what our commander-in-chief was saying about the need for a space force and space as a warfighting domain. So it, it was it was even there, mm-hmm. just not as technologically um, acute, I guess, is the right word. Well, I think that we've just come to a point where reality and science fiction has almost caught up with each other, and just we didn't realize that we were so close. So things that seemed so unrealistic and were just, you know television or entertainment are now actually potentially achievable within our lifetime. Sure. <clears throat> Watch 2001 Space Odyssey to get a feel for that. So realize, if, if I can spend 30 seconds on this, 2001 Space Odyssey was re- was released in theaters one year before we landed on the moon. And 
the, the principal portion of that movie is taking place on a lunar base in 2001. And so we had some very forward thinkers that, and watch it, like watch it now in 2020 and think about the fact that it was pro- filmed, produced, and shown one year before we landed on the moon. And think about what that would mean. And, and that's why this conversation can be had is because we have thinkers like that. And this is the challenge that we have going forward, something that we've had a conversation about before that could be wrapped up in right now. And that is that, where are those thinkers right now? Like, where is that conversation? Have we, do we have in our current force the thinkers that are going to move us out of 2001 Space Odyssey into 30-30-30 Space Odyssey? I mean, do we, do we have that? And I don't, I, don't, I don't know that we have. I think that a significant critique and a very valid counter-argument to this conversation about a space force is do we have the expertise in our force? And then, of course, the follow-on question, the other side of that debate is do we need to have it internal to the Department of Defense? Or can we lean on commerce to provide the, the, the forward thinking and then for us to militarize, if you will, those conversations. But that shouldn't be new to us either, right? That sounds a whole lot like the impetus for the Air Force as well. So um, let's finish up with a little bit of science and physics. So China recently landed a rover on the dark side of the moon. Um, Adam, you and I have had some discussions about this and why this success isn't just a novelty. Can you talk to us um, about what the dark side of the moon actually is and why China's landing there is significant to military space professionals? Uh, I could leave it to someone else that's probably more tech-savvy than me, but uh, the way I would explain to my children is that it's sort of like a teeter-totter on the playground, right? So there are these points in space relative to celestial bodies that generate a, uh, a degree of gravity where... The gravity balances, and so you can you can station things there that require very little station keeping or fuel to maintain a fixed location, and it's at those points in space, whether they are relative to celestial bodies like the sun or the earth, or the earth and the moon, or the sun and the moon, or other planets internal to our solar system, that are really important if we are going to stage things for the future, uh, for future use, or for perpetual use and uh, and so that's one of the reasons why China having things on the dark side of the moon and then the ability to communicate with those things on the dark side of the moon is not just a novelty because it demonstrates an acknowledgement by the Chinese that these points have strategic importance as well as tactical and operational importance but it's not the only one in fact I know that we've had these conversations, and I know that the, that the space specialty here at ACSE have had have had this conversation about some other points in space that are probably more important than that one. But uh, but that's the basic physics of it: is that due to the cost of station keeping man-made satellites in space, these points are very important lo- strategic locations to have assets either first or preponderance of in place. And I think uh, one thing that's that's interesting about that is it, it's, it, it is a huge technological achievement, right, for the Chinese to, so like uh, I think uh, Haller's mentioned, the, the 
it's the the Earth Moon Lagrange two point where they have a relay communication satellite placed and. I'll throw a, a reference in here that it's for the, the far side of the moon. The dark side of the moon's a Pink Floyd uh, album, right? The, That's true. The, the far side of the moon is probably a better uh, a better um, description of that. And that for then for you know them to put a lander there, that now they're communicating real time through that comm relay point to, is is pretty impressive. Uh, but what what I take away from that is that um, while that is impressive, the the month before or two months before the Chinese did that, um, we actually, NASA, I say we, NASA actually landed the InSight rover on the far side of Mars. Uh, and we have multiple rovers on Mars that utilize a network of comm relay satellites that are in orbit around Mars to send information back uh, to, the, to, the, to the United States and to Earth. And so uh, when you look at it from a technological standpoint, that's, I think we were talking earlier, it's you know, roughly like four times the distance away. Uh, it's an extremely harsh environment. We're you know, landing um, systems at will there to explore and look around. We're relaying that combat with pictures. I think a month after the Chinese did that, the uh, NASA also had a probe um, at the far re- edges of the galaxy taking pictures and mapping an asteroid uh, and sending those images back. There's plans uh, for a couple years down the road to, uh, to land on one of the asteroids with a NASA system and bring back samples to Earth. Uh, the Japanese currently have a system, Hibusa 2, that is collecting samples off of an asteroid to bring back as well. And so while uh, those, those advancements of landing something on the moon are, are important, and, and they demonstrate a will and an intent and all those things. Uh, you know, my, my takeaway is that you know, we, we are doing the same thing at, at a what I would argue is probably a much higher level of technological difficulty with respect to Mars and the probes at the edge of the galaxy and the other things we're doing with the asteroids and the discussions that are taking place. And now lump in the, you know, drive from... Uh, from our national leadership on, you know, putting a man on the moon and the things that it's going to take to get there. You talk about the U.S.-based commercial industry that has, you know, we're talking about internet from space with the Starlink constellation. Uh, we're talking about uh, Blue Origin uh, is doing ground tests for doing commercial flights into space. You have Virgin Galactic that's now had several different flights uh, into space and is going to be commercializing that pretty soon. And um, I think that it's just it's a really exciting time because all of these things that we've discussed open up a whole host of conversations that um, that, that are we have to be very serious about and I think are uh, it's it's an exciting time at least in my opinion for the space profession in general. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time and expertise. I think this has been an extremely informative discussion, and we at OTH really appreciate you spending time with us to share your knowledge with our listeners. Thank you for listening to this episode of Over the Horizon podcast. Do you want to continue the conversation? Connect with us on our website, OTHjournal.com, on Facebook at OTHMDOS, on Twitter at OTH underscore MDOS, or by searching for Over the Horizon on LinkedIn. We also invite your feedback on Apple Podcasts or your podcast client.